I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. Coming up, journalist Ben Goldfarb will discuss his just-published book. It's called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. You're listening to the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So who would we be as individuals and as a society without roads? Roads are so ubiquitous we hardly think twice about them, except when stuck in traffic. Whether we love them or hate them, roads, both interstate highways and county dirt roads alike, make our lives far more convenient. But if you're a wild animal, or any animal for that matter, roads are a death knell. They block migratory routes and prevent animals from finding their mates. And the roar of traffic chases away songbirds and other species from their natural homes. 21 species of wildlife face extinction due to becoming roadkill, as the author of a new book notes. Our guest today is journalist Ben Goldfarb. His new book is called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. The book explores not only causes and examples of roadkill, but how human-engineered crossings, such as highway overpasses and underpasses, are giving many species a fighting chance to survive and even thrive. Goldfarb has written for High Country News, as well as National Geographic, The Atlantic, and many other publications. In fact, we had him on the show a few years ago when he came out with his first book. It was called Eager, The Surprising Secret Lives of Beavers. Goldfarb joins us now via phone from his home in Salida, Colorado. Ben, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks a lot for having me, Susan. Good to be here. Welcome back, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe start, just define for us briefly, what is road ecology? Yeah, road ecology is the scientific field that studies how roads and really all transportation infrastructure affect nature. And, you know, you mentioned kind of the most conspicuous impact, roadkill, right? We've all seen the carcass on the side of the highway. And certainly that's, you know, that's a big part of road ecology is figuring out why roadkill happens and how to prevent it. But, you know, there are other impacts as well. Everything from road salt that we apply as a kind of a de-icing material that's changing ecosystems to road noise, you mentioned, uh, as this kind of profound form of habitat loss that's chasing animals away from uh, places they'd otherwise like to live. So, you know, the roads cause this vast spectrum of impacts, and road ecology is really the science of figuring out, uh, you know, why that stuff happens, how it impacts wildlife, and, again, what we can do to, uh, to prevent those, those negative impacts of our infrastructure. So in regards to wildlife mortality... Individual animals and whole species populations, are roads one of the biggest killers? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I think that we, as you mentioned, you know, we take roads for granted in a, in a lot of ways. And I think that's, you know, for a long time that was true of the, kind of the conservation movement as well. You know, other impacts like, of course, climate change and poaching and habitat loss, you know, certainly received mm. a lot of attention. And I think that roads... You know, we're largely overlooked as this 
really significant cause of, of mortality for lots of species. You know, I think that part of that is that, you know, the animals that we tend to see dead on the road are deer, raccoons, squirrels, you know, the common creatures uh, that we don't think of as being, uh, you know, on the, sort of on the verge of extinction. But, you know, certainly for many rare and endangered species, roads are one of the primary factors that, uh, that, that, that are endangering them. So certainly, you know, roads, roads are really uh, a major source of biodiversity loss uh, not only in the United States, but all, all over the all over the world. Yeah, and and not just killing individual animals, but as you mentioned, and I'm sure we'll get into that, they cut huge swaths through habitat, so they are a big source of habitat fragmentation, right? Absolutely, yeah. You know, and I, I think again that you know that dead deer or elk by the side of the highway is a, a very obvious manifestation of that fragmentation, but. You know, what we don't really see are all of the animals who can't get to where they need to be uh, as a result of, you know, the kind of the moving fence of traffic, you know, the steady stream of vehicles, you know, cruising down I-70 or I-80 uh, that, you know, that are really preventing animals from moving and migrating, finding mates and food. And, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, that, that barrier effect caused by highways can be even more severe than roadkill itself. You know, the, the, the highway might only be, uh, you know, 150 feet wide, and yet it's denying animals access to hundreds of thousands of acres of habitat in, in some cases. So, you know, there are these, roads are these very narrow structures that have truly outsized impacts on, on wildlife populations and, and distribution. Interesting. Um, early in the book, and in fact, I want to have you read a little passage. I think you describe so well, like both how roads have changed, have made us this modern society that we are, and we love them, we might hate them, but we really take them for granted, and how destructive they can be. So there's a passage where you kind of set the stage decades ago, and how this love of cars began, and to what consequence. So if you could read that, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. This, this comes just a couple of paragraphs from Chapter 3, um, and uh, it goes like this. Uh, when the automobile permeated American culture in the early 1900s, it revolutionized human social contact. We have cars to thank for dating. Before autos, one historian observed, a gentleman caller would sit primly in his sweetheart's parlor, sip tea with her mother, and, quote, listen politely while the young woman displayed her skills as a pianist. <laughs> Empowered by a Chrysler or Nash, he could take his girlfriend out on the town, free from supervision. Not for nothing did moralists denounce cars as, quote, brothels on wheels. Even as cars facilitated human sex, however, they thwarted wildlife from doing the deed. Traffic's moving fence deterred animals from crossing between populations, and cars crushed would-be lovers who dared the trip. By stymieing life's most fundamental act, Highways scrawled their signature into its molecular code. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like mm. that passage, and I, I hope you use it in, in, in part because I think that it, it, you know, it gets at one of the, what I think of uh, as one of the ironies of roads, you know, this idea that we associate them with mobility and freedom and, you know, in, in the case of that passage, sex, you know, and, and, uh, mm. and of course, Bruce Springsteen and Jack Kerouac, right, so many of our most famous artists and writers and musicians have kind of celebrated the open road uh, as, again, this you know, kind of ultimate symbol. Of Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, of course, for, for wild animals, roads are precisely the opposite, right? They're these forces that are restricting movement and mobility and, and, uh, and, and migration. So that tension, I think, between roads as facilitators of human movement and deniers of animal movement or wild animal movement has always fascinated me. Mm. And later in that passage, and then you've got whole chapter sort of focusing on a huge megafauna charismatic creature right there in Los Angeles in the Santa Monica Mountains, the, the mountain lion that seems to be one of the most heavily affected, at least in that area and some areas. Uh, take us there and you and just chronicle some of the, the key problems and, and what's being done about it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, you know, kind of a fascinating population of mountain lions that lives west of Los Angeles, you know, really some of the most urban uh, big cats in the world. Uh, and, you know, their, their problem is that they're surrounded by freeways, right? There's this little cluster of animals living in the Santa Monica Mountains, mm. uh, and those animals can't disperse from that population to find mates because, you know, there are these unbelievably busy freeways, you know, the 101, the 405, you know, these, these huge highways that are just denying them uh, the ability to move around the landscape. And as a result, uh, you know, there, there have been documented cases of male mountain lions who have ended up mating with their daughters, their great-granddaughter, cool. uh, their, you know, their, their, sort of their entire family tree has become, you know, very, very tangled um, because they can't you know, disperse out to find other uh, unrelated animals. Uh, and as a result, you know, they're very inbred, and you know they they started to kind of suffer the, you know, the, the consequences of that inbreeding. And you know, scientists have kind of described them as being in this extinction vortex, a really evocative phrase. Um, you know, they're sort of slowly circling the drain um, because they're so they're so inbred. Um, so there, you know, this the solution that that is being built right now is this giant wildlife overpass mm. across want you know, the busiest freeway in the United States. Sorry, uh, we we, we broke up a bit, Ben. Ac- across what? Sorry, across the, the US 101, you know, one of the biggest... Oh, yeah. Bi- the biggest, busiest freeways in the, in, the, in the country, you know, 10 lanes of traffic. Uh, and that, that wildlife overpass, you know, is going to allow those mountain lions to disperse out. It'll allow new mountain lions to enter the population and theoretically encourage that gene flow that's going to save that population from extinction. So, you know, that, that structure will be, they've already broken ground, and that'll be uh, completed in 2025, and that will be the biggest wildlife crossing uh, in the United States. And, uh, you know, a really good example of uh, how these, these crossing structures can, uh, you know, can really uh, help, help wildlife species and populations. Yeah, and I know many of us in Colorado, we recognize some of them from driving on I-70 or the road to Steamboat. Um, and before I have you dive into some examples here, what generally determines what kind of crossing, you know, engineered crossing, be it overpass, underpass, mixed with fences, would be built in a particular area? Because not all species yeah. are alike, obviously. Right, it's a it's a it's a good question, and you know certainly um, some species, I mean, different species have different crossing requirements. You know, mm. One one good example of that is uh, is pronghorn. Uh, you know, pronghorn are, are these. You know, they have incredible vision. They're of course you know the fastest land mammal mammal in, in North America, uh, and you know they they love being out in open country. They don't like uh, sort of dark enclosed spaces. 
Um, so, you know, underpasses generally don't work super well for pronghorn. You know, that's mm-hmm. an animal that really prefers kind of a big, uh, sweeping overpass with long sight lines so they can, you know, they can see, uh, you know, a long, long distances to watch out for predators. So, you know, prong, if you're, if pronghorn are kind of your primary species of concern, you know, you, you might want, uh, an overpass. You know, other, other species like, uh, you know, uh, sort of like more generalist species like coyotes, for example, or, you know, or mule deer are, you know, pretty happy moving through underpasses hmm. uh, as long as they're kind of big and wide enough and, and um, you know, have enough light entering them. That's, you know, seems to be kind of an important factor is how open those those uh, underpasses appear to wild animals. You know, nobody wants to crawl through a, you know, a long, dark, kind of creepy mine shaft, right? <laughs> they, they, you know, they kind of like, uh, you know, bigger more open structures, but, um, but can yeah, they, you know, can they also be like neon signs pointing to prey for certain predators? They're like, woohoo, I know this is going to be a traffic jam right here. Coming, yeah, you know, the mouth a, of an underpass, say, does that happen too? Right. I think it's a great question. It's, it's certainly something that, you know, it's sort of in the early, early days of wildlife crossings, people were concerned about that. Um, and, you know, there, there has since been research basically showing that that doesn't really happen, um, that, that, uh, that predatory animals like mountain lions or wolves, they don't seem to key in on those underpasses and, and target, uh, target, you know, deer or elk there. So that, that's uh, definitely something that, that people have worried about, but, uh, you know, has, has been generally debunked. Huh. Whether that means they don't like to, you know, so to speak, fish in a bottle. They want they want the chase or or something else, yeah, but that you know, that's interesting. It, it, yeah, it's possible. I mean, you know, I, th- I think that part of it too is that you know those those predatory animals, you know, they're they're kind of road shy species generally. Right? Mm. They don't you know wolves and mountain lions. They don't want to spend all of their time next to a highway and waiting for a, a herd of mule deer to come in. You know, they tend to avoid that area. Although they do use crossings themselves. Whereas others, like some of the smaller less visible species like the tortoise and others you you refer to um frogs and such that may gravitate towards the warm asphalt to their demise right yeah i mean just 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 yesterday i was actually driving back to salida from from taos and and uh, you know at, at probably eight o'clock in the morning or so my my wife and i uh came across a, a prairie rattlesnake on, uh, on on highway 285 that was mm. you know just sunning itself on the, uh, the the warm the warm pavement, so oh, bad you know, we spot. pulled over, and I not a, not a good spot for uh, <laughs> for any animal to be. Yeah, so we pulled over, and I used my fishing rod case to kind of nudge him off the uh, off the highway and into the grass. So hopefully he's doing okay. But oh yeah, hooray! I bet you've got quite a toolkit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're always always ready to assist an animal across the road or, or off the road. Um, yeah. But you know, I mean, that, I think that speaks to the fact that you know that roads are their ecosystem in a sense, too, right? They're very dangerous, but they also, you know, offer some resources. You know, they're, they're basking areas for snakes and tortoises and, you know, the roadside, roadside flowers you know, are, are habitat for pollinators. And, of course, you know, carcasses mm. uh, become food for coyotes and golden eagles and other raptors. Uh, so, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, roads are, are they're forms of habitat loss, but they're also forms of habitat in, in some ways. They're ecosystems that we have to think about and manage. Interesting. Um, for those who are joining us a bit late, you're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm your host, Susan Moran, and I'm talking with my guest, Ben Goldfarb. He's a journalist and has just published new book. 
is called Crossings, How Rotocology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. So let's uh, bring us here to Colorado. There's so many examples. Uh, maybe just highlight a couple and, and the history of these crossings in Colorado. Yeah, you know, Colorado was one of the first states to have wildlife crossings. There were mule deer underpasses on I-70 going back to the 1970s. Um, you know, these days, kind of the most famous and effective uh, structures in the, in the state are, are probably on Highway 9 um, south of Kremlin. And, uh, you know, that's really kind of important winter habitat for mule deer. Mm. Uh, historically, you know, an, an average of 56 collisions with deer and elk happen every year in this little 10-mile stretch of highway there. So it's an incredibly dangerous place, not only for animals, uh, but for, for drivers, of course. You know, nobody wants to hit uh, a deer or elk. Those are really dangerous situations that kill a, a couple hundred uh, drivers every year. Um, so there, you know, the, the, the state, you know, with some private funding, uh, built uh, two wildlife overpasses and five underpasses with fences between them to kind of funnel the animals to those structures. Uh, and, you know, those, those wildlife crossings have uh, reduced collisions in that area by around 90% since, uh, since 2016. Wow, really that's allowed. dramatic. Yeah, really, really impressive, you know, and, you know, Seth certainly paid for their own construction by, you know, averting all of these expensive, dangerous collisions. And, you know, they've all, they've, they've allowed, you know, everything from deer and elk to, you know, pronghorn to mountain lions to black bears to, to cross that, that highway safely. So, you know, a really good example of, of how well these structures can work, not only for animals, but for, for human safety as well. Yeah, boy, those are so big and so elegant, actually. I'm always struck looking at those and, of course, hoping I can see a little action while driving through and not taking eyes off the road. But um, was there much trial and error with those? Because those were some of the earlier ones. Or was it was enough known about the science and the engineering at that point that they were pretty much from the get-go, you said from 2016, successful in reducing mortality? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, there certainly trial and error has occurred in the, the field of radiology over over the years. But you know, there I mean, since the 1990s, really, hmm. uh, you know, it seems like engineers have had a pretty good idea of, of what works. Uh, you know, Wyoming built uh, a bunch of uh, crossing structures in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Arizona, Montana, uh, other states, you know, have kind of experimented with this over the years. Um, I mean, really, you know, the, the history of wildlife crossings goes back to Europe. You know, I mean, it was it was countries like France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, you know, mm. who really pioneered this, this field in the, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, there's been a lot of sort of cross-cultural uh, learning over the decades as well. So by the time those Highway 9 structures were built, um, I, yeah, I do think that road ecologists had a pretty good sense of how to, how to make these, these sorts of structures appealing to, uh, to, to all kinds of species. And in fact, there's a new pretty significant one in the making on I-70, right? Talk about that a bit. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's a, a really exciting possibility. Um, you know, one of the sort of longstanding dreams of, of road ecologists in Colorado is to, is to have uh, wildlife crossings at Eastvale Pass on I-70, which is this sort of biodiversity hotspot. You know, it's home to not only common animals like deer and elk, but they're also, you know, there's, there's uh, Colorado's lynx population mm. uh, kind of up against I-70 there, which, uh, you know, appears to be a, a barrier to lynx movement. Uh, so this idea of, of having crossings at, at Eastvale Pass is, a, you know, a very 
long-standing dream. And, and you know, in the last year or two, it's, you know, it, it really has started to seem like something that is going to happen, um, in part because there's, there's lots of funding available for wildlife crossings now that didn't exist uh, even a few years ago. You, you mean know, in like federal funding um, from, federal the, from the Inflation Reduction Act or other, other kinds of funding? Because you mentioned before <laughs> private funding that seemed pretty prevalent yeah. for some. But in this case, yeah, there's more I, so, federal funding, too. Right. So the, so the 2021 Infrastructure Act uh, included $350 million for wildlife crossings wow. over several years. And that's basically, those are basically matching funds. The states have to bring some of their own money to the table. So, so Colorado actually uh, passed its own bill allocating $5 million to crossings that you know, can use to kind of leverage that federal funding. Um, so basically, there's this, you know, the upshot is that there are these these new pots of both state and federal funding earmarks for wildlife crossing that exist now that didn't exist a few years ago, uh, and that's making these big, ambitious projects like I-70 feasible uh, when they, they weren't before. Interesting. And if money were no issue, for instance, would there be many more? I mean, what determines, like, what's the minimum amount, and again, species-specific, I suppose, and topography-specific and all that, but would be if not optimal, at least sufficient to give them a leg up and foster, you know, genetic mixing and reduce mortality, of course. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, certainly, you know, the money that has been your mark city structures, you know, $350 million sounds like a lot, right? But that's, you mm. know, I mean, that's basically, you know, that's, that's enough to, you know, heal all of the roadkill hotspots in California alone, you know, let alone <laughs> 49 states, right? So, you know, this is, so certainly, you know, there's, there's new money out there, um, but, you know, this is such a, a, a sweeping, prevalent problem, um, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that the, the money that has been earmarked for it, you know, is, is in some ways uh, just kind of the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of, in terms of what's, what's needed. So, you know, certainly uh, it's great to see, you know, it's great to see, new money coming to this problem, but, uh, you know, we certainly need more of it. Yeah, and it sounds like, or is this the case that overall, they're the economic benefits that are proven as well as the ecological ones? Yeah, the, eco- the economic benefits are, are very well proven. You know, I mean, if, uh, the, the average beer collision, you know, costs society something like $8,000 uh, in vehicle repairs, hospital bills, you know, tow truck expenses, hmm. the loss of that animal to hunters. Uh, so, you know, these collisions are they're really expensive. And, you know, if you have, uh, you know, structures like those Highway 9 crossings that are, you know, preventing 50 deer and elk collisions every year, wow. you know, that's, a, that's, a huge, that's a huge cost savings. There's certainly been studies of wildlife crossings in places like Wyoming and Arizona that show that, you know, many of these structures speak for themselves. Uh, in a, you know, a handful of years, um, you know, or a, a decade or two. Um, so, you know, certainly these are, these, these wildlife crossings make a lot of sense from a conservation standpoint. Um, but there, there's also, uh, you know, this great kind of cost benefit rationale as well, which is a big part of, you know, why so many transportation departments, including CDOT, uh, have, have uh, gotten into them in the last uh, decade or so. Oh, and speaking of CDOT, so on the ethical and economic side, like what's good versus bad? road development because even though some roads are being uh sort of decommissioned by and large it seems like we're on a path to bigger and bigger and more people and thus more roads yeah it's, it's, it's 
does feel pain. It, 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 uh, you know, it, it, it is a, a little bit, uh, a little bit troubling. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if they, I don't know if I have a great, uh, you know, single ethical framework. You know, merely to say that, uh, you know, look, obviously there, you know, there are all kinds of ways of getting around the planet that don't involve, uh, you know, getting in a, getting in your your single occupancy vehicle. You know, and and uh, you know, I think that. See that in the city of Denver, and you know other other agencies have you know have have increasingly invested in bike lanes and and bus transit and and other you know forms of mass mobility, which is good. But you know we're also uh, expanding and enlarging uh, highways all over the place, of course. So you know there, there's this kind of there are these two currents I think that are hmm. bumping up against each other, and, and you know there's no uh, easy answers, and, and um, you know certainly wildlife crossings are part of it, but, uh, you know, they're not, uh, certainly not the entire solution. And I've got to ask, are self or will self-driving cars be uh, any more part of the solution or just lead to more kills or TBD? Yeah, T- you know, TBD, I think. I mean, certainly, you know, autonomous vehicles will be very good at detecting the big animals like deer and elk because, you know, they're, they're good at detecting human pedestrians. Or they're not good. They're, they're getting better at detecting human pedestrians. Um, but, you know, the small animals like that rattlesnake that, uh, you know, that we saw the other day, uh, you know, we're not, um, self-driving cars aren't going to, aren't going to detect those, or at least they're not being designed that way. So, you know, they might, uh, they might make large animal roadkill better and small animal roadkill worse. Who knows? Well, fascinating. So much more to talk about, but we're out of time. That was journalist Ben Goldfarb, whose new book is called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. In fact, he'll give a book talk at Tattered Cover Bookstore this Friday, September 8th, in Denver on Colfax Avenue at 6 p.m. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ben. Good luck with the tour. Thanks a lot for having me, Susan. Appreciate it. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X, formerly Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.